Uh, for those of you who, um, yeah, who may be kind of new around here, my name's Caleb. I'm one of the leaders here at Gateway Church. Uh, I have the, um, I'm not sure I'll call it pleasure given the su- subject today, but I have um, the, the, the job of uh, wrapping up this final series uh, the final talk in this series, we are calling this series Elementary. Uh, we're based in Hebrews uh, chapter 6. I've got so many bits of paper in my Bible. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Um, we are, uh, we've called this Elementary, looking at some basic teachings. The author of Hebrews, um, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, so he or she said, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds, placing our faith in God. Uh, You don't need further instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And he says, and and so God willing, we will move uh, forward to further understanding. That is, we are wanting to, the reason we're going over these things, I appreciate uh, the, the author of Hebrews was saying, we don't need to go over these again and again and again. Uh, we felt like it's been a while since we went over these, so we are going over these again. And uh, we've done the first four, and uh, it is my task today um, to end with the final two, which you will see there are uh, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Um, So yes, we are talking about heaven. Yes, we are talking about hell today. Um, Fasten your seatbelts. It is often, funnily enough, this is something that gets requested quite a lot. A lot of people say, what, what, you know, we talk about heaven a lot. Can we please talk about hell sometime? What do we believe about it? What do we teach on this? Um, So probably approximately 50% of today's talk you will enjoy, and 50% of today's talk... um, you may enjoy less so. Uh, The reality is the the idea of hell is not a pleasant or enjoyable thing to think about or talk about. Uh, I approach this with some trepidation. I don't feel like I'm an expert on these things. Uh, There are some things around this talk today that I feel clear on and confident and full of faith about. There are other parts that I feel uh, much less confident and still have a huge amount of questions. There are um, theologians, people who are experts on the Bible, who, you know, who, have, who far exceed my qualifications, who if you ask them what is the most challenging thing, subject in the Bible, many of them would say uh, the idea of hell, an, a, an eternal existence without God. And... Um, Today I'm going to set out where I land on this, having kind of studied over the past few weeks. Uh, I'm going to use some individual uh, Bible verses that kind of hopefully shed some light on these things. But alongside this, you, you do have to um, kind of bring in the overall view of God we, we come across in Scripture. You can't just approach this with like, let's have a proof text for this and a proof text for that. We have to gain a view of God from Scripture and kind of use that alongside various passages of the Bible to try and come to a view. Now, just to be clear from the outset, uh, we really need to reject uh, the basic idea that seems to be out there in the world that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That is basic and wrong, and we need to just reject that completely and utterly. Um, Billy Graham, very famous guy who, who you know, did a lot of teaching, 
shared the good news with lots and lots of people. He talked about how the reality is for most Christians, you are probably going to be surprised at some of the people you find in heaven, and you're probably going to be equally surprised to discover who isn't there. That's what Billy Graham said. And um, the reality is, where, where do we kind of you know, ground this? And what I would suggest is we, we need to kind of take the, the Bible in its entirety, there is a story from start to finish, right? There is a beginning, and a, I'm not sure you call it, well, beginning and end are loose terms, but there is, a, there is a path, a kind of trajectory throughout the entirety of Scripture. So you start, and it's about creation. God creates the entire universe, the cosmos, the world, uh, people, animals, everything that fills it. We, we then see the fall where people are, uh, you know, the first people make these terrible decisions and separation from God happens. You then see the, the kind of story of Israel, God choosing a specific group of people to outwork his promises through. We then see Jesus as the ultimate uh, kind of revelation of God to the world. God in human form coming to earth. And, uh, and then he is crucified. Uh, he, raised, he rises from the dead. Um, and then he commissions the church to continue his work and ministry. This is where we reside. We are in this phase of the story right now. The church, you and I, as the body of Christ, outworking his mission on this earth and uh, equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Uh, but then where does it head after this? The reality is uh, where we see Scripture leading is Christ returning to earth and a final judgment happening. Confession time. Um, remember, I don't know if you remember this, you, you probably don't, but um, a few months back I uh, did a, a, a talk about Micah and the idols that he had, and uh, I talked about the, a pick-and-mix faith, this thing of you can pick, you know, we might be tempted to pick and choose like bits of like, yeah, we like this bit of scripture, but we're going to, and I talked about how it's quite easy to, to sometimes be tempted to ignore certain bits of the Bible or God's character, and as I prepared that talk and as I delivered that, I felt quite convicted, actually, that one of, there were two things, one was around money and what Jesus says about money, which I find very, very challenging and quite like to ignore, um, but then the second was actually about this idea uh, that God is a God who is a God of justice and a God who one day will judge. I don't like to think about that. And so I have a tendency myself to, to, to just kind of gloss over that kind of idea about God. But we are going to talk about that today and we are going to try and make some progress on it. Now, um, if, if you're thoroughly depressed already, apologies. A little bit more bad news before we get to some good news. Um, you're going to die one day. <laughs> uh, the wonders of modern medicine have helped to you know, progress life in many, many ways. Yet, the death rate remains firmly around about 100%. Right? That is the reality of life. One day you and I will die. I think we have, to, we, we have to be able to talk about that, right? That's not something that our society likes thinking about or talking about, right? People die all the time. It is a, a, an inevitability about life, is that one day life will end. Now, that, that's, there you go. 
Just needed to say that. Um, there are lots and lots of, that could be said around this whole to topic today. Lots of theories that you could unpack around what happens when Christ returns and brings the curtain down on this version of creation and what happens to people now who die now, kind of before that time. Not going to go down that route at all today. And we just don't have the time to get into that. Uh, however, the, my conclusion from the Bible, just to kind of lay my cards out really, is that ultimately where things end up, eventually, ultimately, is we have two realities, two eternal realities in a recreated heavens and earth. One of them you might call eternal life, heaven in the presence of God. The other being eternal judgment or what we might call Hell. Now, I'm just going to read, there's going to be lots of Bible um, passages today. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. We, the, John, one of Jesus' followers, gets a bit of a glimpse as to where things are headed. And this is what he writes. He's, he sees this in a vision. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All those things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne, Jesus says, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my people. Normally, we would stop there. <laughs> Verse 8, but cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshippers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We don't normally go that far in that passage, do we? It's much easier to stop before that. I would suggest what we are being laid out is this thing of, of two eternal realities of life with God and life without this second death, this eternal judgment. I don't know about you, uh, the first one sounds a way lot more appealing than the other one, right? It, eternity with God, where he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. My home is going to be among you. You, are, you will all inherit all of these blessings. You will be my children. I will be their God. That sounds incredible, doesn't it? And that second reality, I want, I want nothing to do with that, right? I, that is about as unappealing as it gets. Now, when it comes to these two realities, I would, for me, um, there, there, are, there are some things that I feel are kind of clear and simple, and so let's start there, okay? I want to say today, loud and clear, there is a way to securely, confidently inherit eternal life, right? That has to be our starting point as believers. There is 
a way. And that way is Jesus, right? There is a way to be confident uh, that you will secure that when that time comes that you will die, you will move on. Uh, you can confidently inherit that first reality, eternal life. Famous verse, probably the most famous verse in the, the Bible. John 3 verse 16 says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's simple. It's through Jesus, through his death and resurrection. Anyone who believes in him, it doesn't say might have you know, might not perish and might get eternal life, will not perish, but will have eternal life. And let's find another verse that's kind of similar to this. So uh, we're going to go for Romans chapter 10, verses 9 uh, to 13. It says this, makes it even clearer. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will, it's that word again, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile, the people who, who you know, kind of God had chosen through the nation of Israel and the Gentiles, the outsiders, they are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the way. It is simple and it is beautiful and it is profound. The way to inherit eternal life, to be saved, is to declare with our words and believe in our heart that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died and rose again and he took a punishment that we deserve. That is the way. That is the simple, beautiful truth of the good news, right? That is the way we inherit eternal life, faith in Jesus. And, and it doesn't have to be a half-hearted hope. We can be confident, trusting in God's grace and mercy. There is nothing will be counted against you on that final day, on that final judgment. Nothing, no sin, no thought, no word, no action, no intent of the heart will be held against you because of Jesus, simply by putting your trust in him. It's a free gift that he offers to us. Um, there's, there's a great passage in um, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, and uh, where it, it's pretty obvious that they've sent a letter to him, or they've asked a question of him saying, talk to us about what happens at the resurrection of the dead. And he takes almost like a, a full chapter I mean, he didn't write in chapters. We've put the chapters in later. But there's like a full chapter here where, where we are given a, a glimpse or an outline of like what will happen at the resurrection, particularly in terms of our bodies. I was, I was hoping to read the whole thing today, but it, it's really long. And I, I, when I ran it through, it's just, it makes my talk far too long. So I would love you to go away and read the whole of 1 Corinthians 15 this week, and you will be inspired and encouraged. Um, but I'm just going to read a few verses um, from, this is Paul trying to explain what happens at the resurrection of the dead. He said, so you see, just as death came into the world through a man. Now, I don't have a PowerPoint for this bit, by the way. Um, now, um, the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. 
But there is an order to the resurrection. Christ will be raised at the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Paul believed this absolutely wholeheartedly. And then we move on to verse 51. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to life, uh, to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there's some great content in there. I really would encourage you to read the whole of that chapter. But we just, would you do me a favor? Would you close your eyes for a moment? And I want you to do some, I want to use that imagination that might have been, you know, sometimes we grow out of our imagination as adults, don't we? But close your eyes, just imagine with me. Eternity in heaven, a new body, no more aches and pains, no more creaking out of bed on a morning, in a brand new created heaven and earth, no brokenness, no waking up and reading the news on a morning and reading the horrific stuff that happens in our world. No more tears or mourning. But better than that, being in the very presence of God. Union, relationship with him. What we experience now in part, those very best moments of where you feel intimacy with God. Those very best moments that you've experienced now, they are only in part. And one day you will experience that in full. Day after day after day after day. What an appealing, beautiful image, right? The loving Father in heaven with us. Him saying, I am your God and you are my people. knowing his love deeply and intimately, more so than ever before. Wow. <laughs> it's good to think about that, isn't it? Sometimes we get so caught up in the busyness of life, the, the, the cares of this world, and we should care about this world. But we also need to make sure we don't lose sight of where this is he heading. Yeah, I'd love to end there, <laughs> um, but the writer of Hebrews says that there is another reality, this eternal judgment. What about this then? What, what is it like? Who experiences that? I always think when you're asking a big question about the Bible, a really good place to start is 
asking the question, what did Jesus say about this? Believe it or not, Jesus said probably more than you realize. And he actually said more than any other person in the whole of the Bible. Jesus says more about hell than any other person in the Bible. I don't know how you feel about that. It might be surprising. certainly is for me. How does he characterize it? Well, it would take me a long, long time and we, that we don't have today to go through every reference that Jesus talks about eternal judgment or hell. Um, but he, there tend to be four characteristics that come through. And I would suggest that the first three all relate to the final one as to why that is. So darkness, three occasions where the language of darkness is used by Jesus to describe um, that eternal reality. The second is, the, is the, the gnashing of teeth. I don't really know what to say about that. There's seven occasions where Jesus uses that phrase. There's a, a sense to that in that for me of, of like regret and kind of what might have been. The third is fire on eight occasions. We, you know, this is just Jesus eight times talking about this, this fire. And fire in the Bible is often associated with God's judgment and his justice and a purifying. And the fourth thing that Jesus mentions, he, he talks about this on two occasions, is that there is a separation from God. I would suggest that those three, first three kind of descriptions are all because there's a separation from God. There is not that relationship with God there. There is complete separation from him. And listen, that's just the four gospels. That's just Jesus. There are plenty of other places you could go throughout the New Testament that talk about this reality. There is, it is not a good picture painted of this reality. Is it disturbing? Yes. Is it deeply unpleasant? Yes. Should we feel horrified at the idea? Yes. I would, you know, I would say it's not just normal to feel those things. We should feel that way about a reality of somebody living without God for eternity. We should feel horrified. If you, know, if somebody, if you come across a Christian who feels happy about the idea of anybody spending an eternity without God, I think you have full permission to correct their thinking, right? We should not be taking any delight in this at all. I'm not sure we should be expected, yeah, I've said this already really, but to find joy in thinking about this or the prospect of that being anybody's eternity. Um, <clears throat> to look at uh, Matthew chapter 8, there's a, an interaction that Jesus has uh, with a Roman centurion, a Roman officer, which I think sheds some light on this issue on this topic. And um, I'm going to read it, what happens. We go from verse 5 uh, through to verse 13. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. 
When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, pick that up, that's key. doesn't say this to the Roman officer. Turning to the people who are following, he says, I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. I tell you this, that many Gentiles, Gentiles as in outsiders, people who you think are outside of what God is doing on this earth, many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at what? At the feast in the kingdom of heaven. This is language around what happens, that that final feast in heaven. But what does he say? But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said this to his followers, to his friends. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. Now, two things to note from this. The first is... um, the religious people would have said that this guy was outside of what God was doing on this earth. They would have said, no way could somebody like that ever inherit the kingdom now or for eternity. But Jesus says that him and many people who would be considered in by the religious people would actually be out and vice versa. Yeah, you've got this thing, I think I misspoke there, but you get, you get the idea. Those who might be expected to be in would be out, and those expected or being on the outside would be in. That's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that Jesus does turn away from this guy, and he says this to his followers. The, then he turns back to the Roman officer to kind of talk about the actual healing of his servant. This is a pattern in Scripture. When you look through, as I have done, All of the occasions where Jesus is warning people about hell, a reality without God, the vast, vast, vast majority of times he does so are to his followers and or the Pharisees, the religious leaders, not the people who those people would have expected him to talk to about, the tax collectors and the sinners as they are often lumped together, the people who were deemed to be outside of what God was doing, those are not the people in the whole who Jesus is talking to about a warning about this eternal reality. What do we deduce from this? (laughs) This, This is fascinating to me. I think there are two things that we can take from this. The first is that I think we should be taking our lead from Jesus when it comes to communicating the good news with those who are outside of the faith. In other words, I'm hesitant to talk in certainties around some of this stuff, but I think it should be a rare event that we use hell as a way of trying to communicate the good news to somebody who doesn't believe, because I don't think and I don't see Jesus doing that in the Bible. I'm not sure anyway that scaring the hell out of people is a good or helpful tactic at all. The second thing that I can deduce from this, and I I genuinely present this as a question rather than any kind of like firm statement. Is it possible that those who are most in danger of eternal judgment are those who have had a clear revelation of Jesus and have rejected him. Think about it. 
the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Jesus has a lot of warnings to them about this eternal reality, this eternal judgment. These were people who knew the scriptures inside out. These were people who had seen Jesus do miracles, heard him teach, had come face to face with God walking on earth in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the perfect revelation of God, and yet they rejected him. And in doing so, in rejecting Jesus and what he was doing in this world at that time, they were saying that they didn't want anything to do with a loving, merciful, compassionate God in this life now. So why would a loving God force them to spend an eternity with him when they've rejected him now? They don't want anything to do with that. They've seen him face to face, and yet they reject him. And ultimately, maybe God gives them what they want in the end. You know, some people ask that question, how could a loving God send people to hell forever? Maybe an equally valid question is, why would a loving God force people to spend an eternity with him if if they don't want anything to do with him? So I feel like there are these two realities, eternal life, eternal judgment. And I feel there is, some, there is absolute clarity on how you can clearly inherit that eternal life. I believe there is some clarity as to who and how someone could inherit this eternal judgment. But then <laughs> there's this really messy middle <laughs> that I am really reluctant to. And actually, I'm not sure there's much to be gained by then trying to play a game of who's in and who's out. Because ultimately, this is where I just trust the mercy of God and that mercy triumphs over judgment. There are huge questions here for me. What about those who have never heard the good news? Those who have never heard that message that they can, you know, never been given the ability, the the opportunity to declare that Jesus is Lord with their mouth and believe it in their heart? What about those who don't have the capacity due to age or disability? to proclaim with their lips that Christ is Lord? It's a big question, isn't it? What about those who have heard a terrible version of the gospel? That actually, if I heard it, I would reject it, right? There's plenty of that goes on as well. What happens to those people? Is it their fault that they heard a a warped version of the good news? Honestly, I don't have many answers to these kind of questions. This is where I come back to God and say, God, I trust in you. I trust that you are merciful. Um, John um, 14 verse 6 said this. Uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes a way. He says, I am the only way someone can inherit this, this kind of, I'm the only way to the Father, right? He is the only way. And yes, we are saying the only way, or I am saying that the only way you can be certain of that and have a confident hope of that eternal life with him is by repenting and believing, by saying Jesus is Lord, by accepting his death and resurrection, by believing in it, receiving that free gift 
from him. That is the only way to be certain. But I believe there is a door left open. Even in that verse, Jesus saying, I am the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He makes a way. And I would suggest that that way is broader than just repentance and faith. I think repentance and faith is the certainty you can be sure and certain of your eternal destiny. But Jesus, surely a loving God, makes a way through Jesus that is broader and wider. Otherwise, those questions for me that I've just kind of relayed out, I, I, I am uncomfortable with, with the, the answer to all those questions being, well, they spend eternity without, um, without God. So that's where I am landing on that. Here's the thing that reassures me massively about God. There are two verses I want to share. Uh, the first one is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. So Paul is writing to Timothy. He says this, I urge you, first of all, uh, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way um, for kings and all who have authority, all who are in authority, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. And this is the key line, okay? who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave the world at just the right time. And I've been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. That little line buried in there. You know, this is Paul's task. He's saying, this is my, the task that God has given me, to preach this message, that there is one God. He is a, a one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, and he was Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes a way. But what does he drop in there about God's desire? He says, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Have you thought about that? God's desire is that everyone turns to him. That's his heart. God's, God's not, oh, I can't wait to enact this justice and send some people to eternity without me. God's heart is that everyone is saved. If you think that was maybe just a throwaway little verse that you know, kind of oh, could be misinterpreted, we get another one in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. This is about some people were thinking, you know, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And this is the reason that Peter gives. He says, no, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. This is God's heart. This is what he wants. He wants everyone. His heart is for everyone to turn to him. The reality is everyone won't, but he wants everyone to turn to him. When God created the earth, he made us in his image, humankind. And he gave us the ability to choose, to make choices about everything. What you have for breakfast, who you might want to spend the rest of your life with, which team to support in the Six Nations. You've got a lot of choices in life. It is part of what it means to be human. It's part of what it means to be made in his image. And within that, we are given a choice. 
Do we receive the free gift of eternal life from him through faith? Or do we reject him? We get given that choice. And the reality is, for relationship, choice is essential, right? In any relationship, without choice, it's, it's, not, it's not relationship. It's com- control. It's puppeteering. It's, it's, it's abusive. <laughs> Anything other than choice in a relationship. And God allows us to make that choice. And he is willing, each and every one of us, he's willing every single person on to choose him, to turn to him. He makes a way for us. He, he gives us the solution. He doesn't leave it up to us to find our way back to him. He gives it to us as a free gift. The problem that sits between us and God, sin, the stuff we do say, think, feel that is wrong, he's, he's given us a solution for that already. He willingly died himself, God himself. He willingly died an undeserved death so that he could give us this free gift of grace, this eternal life, this forgiveness for free. And it can start now. He doesn't ask for anything in return other than us saying, yes, God, I need your forgiveness. Hands up. I am, I am in need of a savior. I'm in need of your forgiveness. He makes it so easy and possible for us to receive this gift he has for us. And with that yes to him, he gives us relationship with him now and in eternity, eternal life with him forever. This is the good news, right? Our good news is God has made a way for you to be certain about where you end up on that day. We get to be the ones who share this good news with a world that really needs it, right? This world really needs some good news, and we get to be the ones who share it. I have said yes to God, right? I know that without him, I was headed for for mess, for destruction, absolutely. But I have heard the good news. I have turned to him. I've said, God, I'm sorry. I've I've messed up. I've, I've messed up. I, my sin is a massive issue, God, and I need a solution. And in you, I find it, a free gift of forgiveness, grace, eternal life. Have you? Have you said yes to him? If so, you can be absolutely confident, a sure and certain hope that one day you will spend, you will meet him face to face, and you will have eternal life with him. If you haven't said yes to him yet, I would urge you to consider that. I would urge you to step into all that God has for you, to receive from him the free gift. There's no cost. A free gift of eternal life in him. A God who loves you, who accepts you, who welcomes you into relationship with him. A merciful, compassionate all loving God invites you to intimacy with him. I would urge you to consider that offer that he makes to you. Uh, Musicians, do you want to come up? I'm just going to pray. Father God, we acknowledge that on our own, we fall far short of perfection of even average, of goodness. 
of mercy, of grace, of all the things that you are. We fall far short, and that's a problem. It comes between us and you. But God, we thank you that you have made it possible for that problem to be dealt with. You've made it possible for us to live now free from guilt and shame and the power of sin. We thank you that you have made a way. You did it, Jesus. You paid the ultimate price. You laid down your life. You, you died a brutal death on that cross. So that, because you loved us so much, so that we can have relationship with you. And God, we want to be people who say yes to you. Who say yes and thank you, God, for what you have made possible. And God, we want to be people who live out and proclaim that good news to people around us. Who say, why, why would you take your chances when you can have eternal life, a surety and assurance of eternal life that can start in part now? <laughs> you get to experience a whole bunch of this stuff now. You don't even have to wait. God, why would we not want to share that good news with others? Help us to be people who are captivated by your good news and who share that good news with a world around us that needs it and help us to never lose sight of where things are headed, God, and help us to allow that to shape our everyday now. Amen.